Deuteronomy 19, and the title is Refuge and Safety. And it's been said, the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. And what's amazing is that as I study midweek and for Sunday, oftentimes the, like the top topics and themes totally line up perfectly. Like Deuter- Deuteronomy will emphasize what Jesus said in the Gospels of, of Luke the last week. And I always get blown away when that happens because it happens all the time. And that, you know, as we journey through Scripture, through God's Word, the words are often directed to a specific person or people group, and yet we can still glean from His Word because God's Word speaks. I was talking to a friend last week, just going over, just talking about Hebrews 4.12. It's an amazing verse. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so it's, it's not just that we read the word. In a real sense, the word of God reads us. You know, the Bible isn't just a collection of stories put together. For our learning, the scriptures have inherent life and power. And see, you know, the person who speaks the scriptures doesn't make the word come alive. You know, the word of God is alive, and it gives life to those who dig into it. And what what I do is just relay the truths that the Lord has already spoken, and the scriptures do surgery on us, if you will. And it's amazing how these words from God speak to the church as a whole, but also to the Lord's individual kids, to each of us. And I'll give a message, and oftentimes someone will ask if I knew the situation and if I said what I said because of what I know. And the answer is always no. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, I, you know, I don't teach based on, on, on people's situations. I just teach the Bible verse by verse, and it's the word that speaks to each of us personally. And even as I stand up here and teach, the Lord uses his word to minister to my heart in, in a huge way also, even as I'm just expounding on the truth. Like, I don't make up or create a message. I just deliver the message, and God does the heart work. He's already given us the message. I like what, uh, what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, a sword with two edges has no blunt side. It cuts both this way and that. The revelation of God given to us in Holy Scripture is edge all over. It is alive in every part and in every part keen to cut the conscience and wound the heart. Depend upon it. There is not a superfluous verse in the Bible, nor a chapter which is useless. (laughs) So God's word, it's never wasted. We know Isaiah 55, it accomplishes uh, the work and the purpose for which it set out. So we're talking about the heart. We were talking about the heart and the poor widow member on Sunday. And tonight we're going to be talking about the heart of the Israelites. Like God knows the individual motivations of our heart. And he deals with us accordingly. He uses his word to speak to us, correct us, and direct our lives. And so tonight, we'll, we'll look at the cities of refuge, which were built for those who unintentionally sinned. And the Bible is clear that there are transgressions, which essentially are sins that you know are wrong, but you commit anyway. And then there's a daily falling short in maybe we get a bad attitude, or we have an ungodly thought, or we act out in the flesh rather than the spirit. You know, we repent, God forgives. As long as we live on this earth, we will not be sinless, but our goal, our goal as we are led by the Spirit should be to sin less, to catch those things before it gets into full-fledged sin. But here's the truth about laws. So as we're looking at these laws, laws can do a lot. They can, they can bring order. They can restrain evil. They can help with behavior. Yet laws can never change the heart. Only the grace of God can change the heart. 
So as the Lord leads his people, he reiterates the laws to the Jews so that they be prepared for entering the promised land under Joshua's leadership. And this whole book we're studying is a reiteration in order for preparation. And the chapter tonight, it really points to the value God places on human life, on his kids. You know, Israel didn't have a, a law enforcement organization to police the people, right, like we do today. They, they were left to themselves. So, so justice was important and is important for society to be safe and orderly. And the Bible says that God is a God of decency and order. The enemy is the one who is a proponent of chaos and confusion, uh, it, it reminds me, like, when my grandma was in her 90s, she would get confused. She'd forget who people were, and it was tough to see her forget mo the most important people of her life. And I had some cousins who would actually go and see her and take, take money from her when she wasn't looking uh, because she was confused and didn't know what was going on. And it was horrible that they actually did this. The, the thing is, the enemy wants confusion, whereas God wants clarity, and that's the thing. Order starts from the top. It's kind of like a good leader will implement and create a culture, a culture uh, of order so that things run smooth, as smoothly as they can. God is creating order in the lives of the children of Israel so that they'd be more, there'd be more excuse me, answers than questions. And the Lord would use elders. He would use judges in order for justice to prevail. So the Lord created the cities of refuge, which demonstrate that he desired justice in the land. The Lord wants his kids to be just and fair as well. In Micah 6, 8, it says, He has shown you, O man of God, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God is just, and he is fair. And I get that some people have a problem with the statement that God is fair. Sometimes we can't wrap our mind around how the Lord can actually be fair in certain situations. Maybe we have questioned his fairness in the past because of certain situations or circumstances because we don't understand them. You know, I think about my parents and when I got in trouble as a teenager, I got in trouble a lot, I don't think I ever thought that it was fair. I never was like, you know what, parents, you're right. You're so right. You're, you're right. I'm wrong. Forgive me, please. Like, I don't think I ever said that. And hence why teenagers often say, that's not fair. That's not fair. But see, when kids grow up, they often look back and they go, wow, my parents were actually right. <laughs> I just didn't like the restrictions, and I didn't like the way that they did things. But when we look at God's plan for us, we may totally disagree. Sometimes we do, if we're honest. We'd be like, I don't get that. I don't understand. That doesn't make sense. And yet, the Lord is working in every situation in order that his will for us would come to pass. And it's very much okay that we don't understand the Lord completely because he is holy. He's set apart from his creation. There will always be aspects of God that are, are a mystery, and there will always be gray areas that we can't understand fully. We never want to try to make the gray areas black and white, leave them gray. God did, so we do. Now, that's no excuse to act like we can't understand anything about God. He gave us a lifetime of truth to devour and dig into, and the Lord is always revealing himself to us in ways that are amazing. And so he has a heart for the downcast, the struggling, the sinners, and he gives grace, refuge, and care, and shelter for those who run to him, which is what we'll see today. So you guys, let's pray, and then we'll get into Deuteronomy 19. Well, Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for the opportunity, the privilege to gather together. 
Uh, Lord, having one heart, one commonality, uh, in one accord, looking at your word, Lord, and we just pray that you'd speak loud and clear to each of our lives, right where we're at. We just thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy that you shower upon us every single day. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you give it anyway, and we just thank you that you're loving, forgiving, uh, just amazing Father. Just speak to us this, uh, this evening, in Jesus' name, amen. So verse 1 to 3, 19 of Deuteronomy, it says, When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God has given to you, you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. So there, there were already three uh, cities of refuge in Edom, I mean, on, on the east side of the Jordan. They were Bezer, they were Ramoth, and they were Golan. And so these three additional cities of refuge would be the responsibility of Joshua to implement, and he would do that in Joshua chapter 20. But they had to conquer the land first to get rid of all the ungodliness, and then they were to build these three cities of refuge. And that's the thing. How many of us know, and I'm pretty sure we all know, that the Christian life is not a breeze. It's a battle. (laughs) It's a battle. The Christian life, it's not a playground. It's a battleground. And unfortunately, the enemy is called the God, lowercase g, the God of this world, because day by day he's gaining ground. Yet, like Paul the Apostle wrote, we must not be moved. When I was a kid, I used to love tug-of-war. I don't know if you guys ever played tug-of-war. The point was to not let the, uh, you know, the opposite team gain ground, but the goal was to pull them towards you across the line. Your feet had to be planted, you know, and with all your might, you were to not lose ground but gain ground and win. So don't give up ground by retreating. Gain ground by fighting for the faith. And no, it's not going to be easy. It's not. This fallen world is twisted. It's distorted to the point of having a goal to get you to abandon everything you hold valuable. The enemy wants to use Christians or us Christians to be completely inactive in the faith. Then he won't even have to, we won't even be a threat to him. He won't have to bother with us. Even though the enemy is going to lose in the end, he still is fighting to move people away from the Lord. And so if, you're, if your life as a Christian is easy, we, you may have retired from it. And, and that's the thing. The truth is we never retire from the life of faith because it's not something we do. It's really who we are. You know, as Thanksgiving is coming up, it makes me think of those moments with family. You know, like usually family gatherings are made up of unbelievers and believers. The, the ones that are not Christians often want to just kind of shoot the breeze, talk about life, and yet as a Christian, the thread that weaves through your whole life, the whole, your whole, hold your whole life together really, is the faith, the truth. We can't separate like our faith from our life because our life is all about the faith. You know, it's ingrained in us. We don't compartmentalize it. So without the Lord, ministry, the scriptures, the church, I really don't have, any, I really don't have much to talk about. Uh, and this is why when we, we did life on the West Coast, we gathered together with family and events. I was pretty quiet unless someone actually wanted to know about the Lord or the scriptures or what God was doing in my life, you know. And some non-Christians, they just don't want to hear it. You know, so, so life is difficult already, but as a person who trusts in Christ, it can be even more difficult. But here's one reason why we live this way and walk by faith, because God is our shelter, he's our refuge, he's our strong tower. He's there nonstop. 
and he saved us, loves us. He has, perf- and a per- he has a perfect divine plan for each of us. So these additional cities of refuge were on the west of the Jordan. And the names of these cities were Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. And what's interesting geographically is that if you like look at a map and look at the landscape, you know, these cities of refuge, they were extremely accessible. And I think it was God's design. Like he didn't want it to be difficult for innocent people to flee or to find these cities of refuge. He wanted to make it easy for them. He wanted them to easily find these cities so as to not be killed by those who were chasing after them. And rabbinical tradition states that there, there were signs on every corner to help people get to these cities of refuge. So you like couldn't get lost. God makes it so clear for people to come in and be sheltered and safe. The Deep South shocked my wife and I. The Deep South, it shocked my wife and I because everything would be clear and all of a sudden buckets of water would fall from heaven. Like, what is happening? Like, no one, no one warned us. Why didn't you guys warn us? You didn't hear, no one warned us. We were like, what? We had to run for shelter often. You never knew when. But when it rained in Southern California, and by rain, I mean sprinkled, you, you know, there was, it was like a hurricane was coming. People would freak out. It doesn't rain in Southern California. People would freak out over little drops of rain. Now, the, the first half of my life, I, I lived in Northern California. We actually had seasons. So we had rain and snow and all that. But Southern California, not so much. But even then, nothing compares to torrential downpours here in the city. There's been more than a few times where I was just doing something outside or helping someone move, and then, and then boom, waterfall from the sky, right? And you got to just you run for shelter. You know, we'll, we'll meet later. Text me. Yeah, I remember one time we met after or for the midweek study at the Performing Arts Center, and where we met before this building, a place we rented out. And this one night we met on the top floor of the building, and the roof was metal. And I knew it was metal when, in the middle of my teaching, <laughs> down came the rain and washed the spider out. No, I'm just kidding. Down came the rain, and it was just, it was so loud. And I, I was, all of a sudden, I became like, I don't know what kind of a Pentecostal preacher. I, don't, I just like was yelling. I was like, ah, because it was so loud. I could have stopped and been like, let's wait until it passes. But I just, I was just yelling. And I've never experienced anything that, like that in my life. But th- so those who unintentionally killed someone could run to these cities of refuge for safety. They could flee there, follow the signs. And, and also the Jews in that day, they recorded that the roads of the city's refuge were made extremely wide on purpose and easy to navigate. These roads were specifically kept in good repair, you know, unlike downtown Mobile. They, they, the roads were really nice and smooth. Have you been to downtown? I mean, it's, it's bad over there. You'll destroy your car. You have to be very careful. But essentially, the Lord wanted to make it easy for the innocent to stay protected from those who wanted to take vengeance or to get vengeance. And the Lord has a heart for those who are struggling in sin or on the run. Remember what Jesus illustrated? When the one sheep left the 99, the shepherd left the 99 because they were safe. And he went after the one sheep. It was incredibly important to the shepherd. And when he found it, rejoicing happened. Because that one sheep was lost and then he was found. It's not about outward numbers. It's about inward transformation. You know, Jesus preached to the crowds. He had, he had his small group of disciples, but then he had Peter, James, and John, who were almost always with him. It's not about just quantity. It's about quality when it comes to spirituality. 
you know, he could have, we could have 20,000 Christians who gather together, yet it's all surface level, it's shallow. Or we could have 20 Christians gather, and it's deep and rich. But the fact is, the Lord goes after the outcast, the wrongly accused, and the ones in trouble and turmoil. The Lord makes it easy for people to find refuge in these cities. Likewise, the Lord makes it easy for his people to find refuge in him. Psalm 9.9 says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 16.1, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 118.8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in man. You know, one pastor wrote, Safety comes from our nearness to God, not in our distance from our enemies. The Lord is our refuge and the one who we find shelter in. The world is like a hurricane that never really lets up. And the Lord is like a safe refuge, which we can always find shelter. And the Lord, the Lord will always be our refuge. He, he is 100% dependable 100% of the time. People have let you down, and they will continue to let you down. You've let people down. You will continue to let people down because all people are faulty. Everyone falls short and breaks promises. And it's not always the other person's fault. Oftentimes, it's our fault. And we are very imperfect people. To depend on others to be perfect is foolish. And this is why, this is why unrealistic expectations put on others, it's never good. I don't expect my wife to be perfect, and she knows I'm not perfect, but we both know and focus on the perfect one together. But as we follow the Lord, we can always expect him to move and work and keep his promises because he really is holy and without fault. So now we see the purpose of these cities. Verse 4, it says, And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in times past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with an axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to the one of the cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since, uh, since he had not hated the victim in times past. Verse 7. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. So this law was made way back during this, you know, this time, it's still in effect today because there's a distinction between murder and manslaughter. Murder means intentionally killing another human being. It is premeditated and intended. Manslaughter means the unlawful killing of another without malice or forethought. So the person who unintentionally or accidentally kills someone could flee to one of these cities of refuge in order to present his case to the elders, especially if it was a complete accident. If a, person, if a person didn't flee to one of these cities, the avenger of blood would come, find him, and kill him. And so the avenger of blood was an appointed family member designated to protect and honor the lives of the family. Now, the avenger of blood was not supposed to act as judge, jury, and executioner. They were supposed to turn over this person to the proper people in charge. And he was to gather evidence as well. 
And there's a parallel for in the New Testament, our refuge is Jesus. Hebrews 6.18 says, We might have strong consolation or comfort who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever. And so just like the cities of refuge were scattered throughout the land, so they'd be close no matter where you live. We know Jesus, who is our refuge. He's accessible, and he's close to us. He's with us, and we abide in him. And so now he talks about more cities of refuge. Verse 8 through 10, it says, Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers, and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers. And if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. Lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So as the city expanded, as the land expanded, so the places of refuge were supposed to increase. The point of this was that safety, again, safety was always close. Unfortunately, not all the cities of refuge were built because the Israelites didn't conquer and take all the land that they were supposed to. Now, if they had fully obeyed the Lord and got all the territory promised to them, they'd have more cities of refuge. So it's important that we don't just partially obey the Lord, right? You know, Abraham, when he was called to travel to a faraway land, the place that God appointed for him, he didn't fully obey at first. Abraham first went to the place that his father was from to stay there for a while, Haran. He wasn't supposed to make a stop on the way to the land God promised him. He stopped for five years in Haran. And so the promise was delayed instead of going straight to Canaan. So partial obedience delayed God's promise, but didn't destroy his promise. It's kind of like this. If, if I was at a job and I was told to go to the office store and buy a printer, and I went to the office store and I'd say, you know what, I'm not going to buy a printer. I went to the office store. I, did, I probably did enough, whatever. I, just came, I went to the office store and came back to the work, and my boss said, hey, where's our new printer? I said, well, I didn't buy it, but I, I went to the office store. I did half of what you asked. I mean, what would happen? You think my boss would be pleased? Oh, great job. No, no, I would get in trouble and work would not get done because of me. And so partial obedience is disobedience. And the Jews, they were supposed to take more land, but they didn't take all the land that was promised to them. So they didn't have as many cities of refuge as they were supposed to. Now, maybe they were mad. Maybe they blame God. Maybe they blame others. I mean, blame shifting is a real thing, and yet it was not God's fault. And that's the thing, you guys. Human error is often pawned off on the Lord. You know, when things go bad, oh, that's, why did God allow that? When things go good, oh, I'm glad I did that. Take credit for when things go good, when it's bad, it's God's fault. He becomes the one who people blame for everything wrong in the world, when the reality is it's the opposite. The enemy is the one destroying it all and chaos, causing chaos and confusion. People are the ones who are, you know, using their free will to tear things down, you know, and, and making it all pagan and ungodly. It's not God's fault. You know, it's a dark world out there. Um, I, I, was on, I was looking at the news way too much earlier today. You know, I don't know if you guys do that, but I try to look at it maybe a few minutes here, a few minutes there. 
But I was on it for like half an hour, and I was a different person. I was like, I am depressed, sad, and discouraged. <laughs> like, I had to grab the Bible and get back into that because I was like, I was, it was, I reached my, I went past my limits. It's bad out there. But just as these cities of refuge act as a safety for the possibly innocent, so too Jesus acts as a safety for us. And yet, the difference is, we were guilty before God, yet he saved us. He keeps us safe anyway. A couple of verses on that is 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. It says, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. 2 Timothy 4.17 and 18 says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me from his heavenly kingdom, for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 6. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, helper, Sorry, I will not fear what can man do to me. So when we actively believe that God is our refuge and we trust in him with, all, with our lives, we will see how he comes through every single time. Every single time he comes through. So now, what happens to the guilty ones? Well, verse 11 says, But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of this city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocence, blood, from Israel, that it may go well with you. So essentially, there were those who fled to these cities of refuge, but they were actually guilty. They did murder someone. It was intentional. They intentionally took someone's life. So they were guilty, and they tried to get protection, and so they lied to the elders. And, you know, the elders do their investigation. If the person is found guilty, they'd be executed. And murder was a capital crime in Israel. There were a lot of capital crimes in Israel at this time. Idolatry, sorcery, disobedience to parents, kidnapping, homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, rape. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court declared capital punishment unconstitutional, but then in 1976, it was reinstated. But let me, just, let me give you some parallels, because this is such an amazing thing between Jesus and the cities of refuge, because these cities were a picture of what Jesus would do and be for those who call upon him. So like the cities of refuge... We find refuge in Jesus. And also, he's within reach of every needy person. He's not far off, cold, impersonal. He is near. Like the cities of refuge, Jesus is open to all Jew and Gentile. doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what your background is. He, is. he is there. Like the cities of refuge, Jesus provides protection within the boundaries of truth. And one main difference, though, is that the cities of refuge only help the innocent, but the guilty can come, also come to Jesus, repent, and be saved. So we see the grace of God in sending Jesus, right? And we see his mercy and compassion. We see his love and his care for his kids. We see his view of us is one of a father who is there for his child. God's love is seen through Christ and through the cities of refuge. So, so now, you guys, the rest of the chapter really is just other legal principles. So we'll take a look at those. In verse 14, it says, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So the landmark. 
So the Lord really is establishing here personal, you know, private property, the right to private property. And when your neighbor has a legal landmark, meaning land, everyone else must respect that. God would entrust each tribe with a plot of land with boundaries, and then the families who belong to the tribe would lay claim to specific plot or area. In other words, this was established so the people would follow the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. God was establishing safeguards and laws and protection for the family's land. Extortion was stealing too, so officials were not to make unjust laws that benefited them as well. That we can kind of, you know, we're familiar with that, making horrible laws. That's happening in our country now. It's been happening for a while. But God took, you know, God took assumption out of the equation by being specific. These laws were put into place to protect the people, protect the people. And the Lord was their protector, and the Lord is your protector. Psalm 62, 2 says, He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Psalm 119, 14 says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. So the Lord is the protector of his children. He is our shield. He is our help. As he was relaying these laws about the land, it was, you know, it was so no one would be taken advantage of. And this is why in the first century, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders so much. And we're seeing that as we're going through the Gospel of Luke on Sundays. He called them hypocrites. They devoured widows' houses, meaning they took from them the little that they actually had. And they abused their position of leadership and authority. They took advantage of the people. And so the Lord rebuked them multiple times because the Lord protects his people. You know, the Lord did, didn't make laws that were ambiguous or blurry. They were very clear and straightforward. And now he talks about true and false witnesses, right? Those who are honest and those who lie. Verse 15, it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Verse 20. And those who remain shall hear and fear and hereafter. They shall not again commit such evil among you. So in other words, this is like a divine system of justice. Really, it depended upon the people being honest and telling the truth. Perjury is promising to tell the truth under oath, but then lying. The law required two or three witnesses to establish the guilt of the person accused. And so Jesus and Paul, they really applied this principle to church, to church discipline in the New Testament. You know, after going to the person one-on-one, witnesses were needed to be involved in order to settle the matter. So if a person was accused and there was only one witness, they'd have to go to the central court in the sanctuary at this time and place and plead in front of the priestly court. And they'd hear the person and then find out if they were lying or not. You know, Proverbs 19.5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. Verse 9 of Proverbs 19, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. Again, these things were put into place 
But what about people who get away with the lies they tell? Well, the comforting thing is that God knows the heart. God is also the judge. We don't know the heart a lot of the times. We're not the judge. God knows the heart. He's the judge. He is the one who every knee will bow to. And when it comes to the Lord, no one can get away with anything. Right? Because he sees and he knows all. Right? He's omniscient. Lastly, you guys, and this principle you recognize as well, verse 21, your eyes shall not pity, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. So in other words, the punishment must fit the crime. The law is known as lex talionis, which is Latin for the law of retaliation. And in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus spoke about this. Matthew 5, 38 to 42 Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants you to borrow, from him do not turn away. So Jesus, did, he didn't come to rescind the old laws, but to fulfill them. Because Jesus taught to not practice personal revenge, but leave it in the hands of God. And we are to imitate the Lord and return good for evil, love for hatred, sacrifice for selfishness, no matter how hard that is. It's difficult at times, but with the Lord, we can do it. Jesus' clarity of the law arose from its use to regulate conduct between people or individuals. He did not reject it as a principle of justice, which should operate in the courts of the land. But for private relationships, he proposed the idea of brotherhood, a strong principle throughout the book of Deuteronomy. So when Joshua would lead the Israelites into Canaan, he was to, uh, he, he was to approach the cities that were outside their inheritance with peace first. Right? Only if they refused were they to do battle. And then if they refused and they did battle, then the men would be killed, but the women and the children would be spared. In other words, <laughs> we are to have character qualities of the fruits of the Spirit first. Like we are to deal with people with love, joy, you know, peace, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control, all of those things. But our first inclination should not be to start swinging when someone is disagreeable. Instead, our first inclination should be to start serving and to love God and to love others. Amen?